Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you be the best professional you can be, providing a mix of career and leadership coaching, courses, content, and community. Basic membership is free. So what are you waiting for? Visit Pathwise and join today. Today, my guest is Greg Martin. Greg is an investment banker, angel investor, entrepreneur, and regular host of a career podcast himself about the world of work and business. His day job involves advising corporate clients and business owners as a managing director with Origin Merchant Partners, which is focused on providing advice around mergers and acquisitions, strategy and capital raising for some of Canada's best companies. Greg's particular focus is on the food, consumer, technology, and insurance sectors. Greg was also a co-founder of Farmer Prepared Foods, a restaurant and office catering business that transformed into an e-commerce meal delivery company post-pandemic. His earlier career was also in investment banking with stints at several firms along the way. He earned his bachelor's degree in business administration from Lazaridis School of Business and Economics at Wilfrid Laurier University, and he lives in the Toronto area. Greg, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Jer. Yeah, absolutely. Let's start with your day job. I know you've got a podcast that you do on the side. We'll get to that a little bit later, but tell us a little bit about your primary job is. Yeah, so I'm what we call an investment banker, but I'm focused on the the advisory side. So my typical day job is helping companies, and typically that's owners and founders when they want to exit their business. So first and foremost are helping them with that, conducting a sale process, and ultimately doing all the steps and consulting them on on actually selling their business. And that's what I do as my day job. I started a little bit more broad. And as I've as I've gotten yeah. through my career, become you know that much more niche. And, and so really, that's what we do. Primarily, I work at a company called um, Origin Merchant Partners. We're about 50 people across mm-hmm. Chicago, Toronto, and Montreal. And yeah, that's my day job. And what industries do you tend to focus on? Personally, food, consumer, and tech a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that's where I focus. As a firm, we are quite broad and, and do a lot of things, but that's my kind of that's my niche. Yeah. How did you get into those? Yeah, through a lot of just experience and, and tough stuff that I've done as well. I had a an entrepreneurial stint in a food business. And that was, I think, a lot of what gave me the background as an operator and into that world, it's only a small part of it, I would say. The food world is super complex out there. And, and so I saw part of it. But over the years, I think working with companies in my various roles that I've had, I've, I've gotten sort of more and more intimate and more and more familiar with what goes on there. And so, you know, that's been a lot of where I've just, yeah, learned more. So I think I, I bring a lot more, I guess, expertise in those areas. At the same time, my background has been in MA. So mm-hmm. typically understand really well what it takes, what companies are looking for, the good and bad of, of making an acquisition or the right time to sell and all those things. And, and that's what we advise our clients to all the time. How big are these companies typically when they're coming to you and looking to execute a sale? 
I call it a value of the business, the enterprise value of the business, anywhere from 25 to 200 million, I would say is kind of our sweet spot. We go bigger and smaller depending on the situation, but that's most commonly where we provide the most advice and just call it our area of the market at Origin. Are they typically selling to a strategic buyer of somebody else in their industry or to a private equity or to some other structure? Both. Yeah, I would say both. Again, just going to depend on the situation. You'll have a company where it just makes a lot of sense to go to a strategic and others where you know maybe there aren't a lot of strategics or where a financial buyer, a private equity firm, or someone with a investment horizon that they're looking at maybe just the ultimate better buyer. And so, you know, in a lot of processes that we're running when we go out and do these sorts of things, we're going to both to try to see, you know, who out there is willing to pay the most and come up with the best offer, structure, et cetera, to people that are looking to sell. How much do you get into advising them on right timing, right sale approach, all of those kinds of things? Yeah, it depends on the client. I would say we'd always love to be doing that and doing it early, right? Because I think you can... Honestly, some people think about it right when they're starting a business. They, in the early days of, hey, I'm going to start this business, you start thinking about, well, how am I going to exit and where is it going to go and who am I going to right. sell to? And that may change over the evolution of a business. But really, you can start to get involved and in that thinking really early. However, I would say a lot of clients tend to call us or seek us out when they are pretty close to wanting to do it. And it's sometimes yeah. not too late in that sense, but where they're just saying, hey, I a bunch of things have happened. I'm in a situation, whatever it might be. I need someone right. to help me now because you know, I want to sell now. And that's probably, yeah. I would say probably the more common situation, frankly. What percent of the time do they stay involved after the sale? It's pretty common. I would say, unless you're selling to sell, like your direct competitor, in which case they kind of mm-hmm. want you know you as a founder out of there quickly. But if that's not the case, then it's quite common to stay for at least six months, but in some cases, you know, longer, especially if you're selling to a financial buyer. So I'd say it's common. I think more often than not, whoever the founder is, is sticking around at least a little bit, but it's the question is more so around how long. And I imagine in some of these cases, there's an earn out sort of an incentive for them to help make sure it's successful and they get extra funding if they're able to do that. For sure. For sure. Yeah. That's a common, common structure. Again, depending on who the buyer is, there's a bit of a disconnect potentially, or the buyer thinks, hey, there's going to be a bunch of risk. Again, if it's an industry you know really well, it's your biggest competitor, you really understand what's going on, then potentially just saying a non-compete where, hey, you can't go start a competing business tomorrow or or within the next couple of years, but otherwise I'm going to be pretty covered, then that's fine. And that's very common. But if you've got a situation where, again, a financial buyer or someone who's not less familiar, isn't operating in that exact same industry, then yes, they'll probably think towards an earnout just to keep you involved as an owner or founder trying to sell their business. You've been doing this for most of your career. I know you had an entrepreneurial stint in there, which we'll get to in a second, but how and why did you get into doing M&A? It was my first job and I sort of liked it. I was good at it and I just kept going. And that was part of the story. I knew I liked finance. I sort of started in university thinking I would go along the accounting path and become an accountant of some sort maybe and and then decide however. And I sort of discovered finance all of a sudden and realized, no, 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 this makes more sense. I kind of like this better. It it uses accounting, but isn't you know sort of that all day long. And so... I got into finance, found M&A because that was where I started working. And you know, the challenge investment banking is that where I started my career as an analyst, you're working very easily 80, sometimes 100 hours, sometimes more than 100 hour weeks. And so right. for me, I, I had to mentally prepare myself for that and, and effectively tell myself, hey, I'm just going to do it for two or three years. And then, yeah. and then yeah. it was, I hit the 10 year, 11 year mark. I had the 10 year mark and I sort of looked at myself saying, what am I doing here? Now it's not 100 hour weeks for all those 10 years by any means. 
it gets better and it changes, but it was kind of a stark change. It was this big thing that I need, you know, that I had to do. And so that's sort of what led me to thinking about something different, which it turned out to be an entrepreneurial endeavor. Yeah. So tell us a bit about that. It was before I hit the 10-year mark, but I started thinking about it anyways. And I took a big and left the job probably around the 11-year mark. Been thinking about this entrepreneurial thing for a long time. I was kind of struggling with it. I didn't have a business I was passionate about really, or that I really wanted to do, or that I even felt like was going to save the world or make me a billionaire. I don't know. However, you sort of get into these things. And so, but I knew I liked the food world and I had done a bunch in that space. And so I said, all right, well, at the very least, even if this business isn't super successful, I was already sort of thinking about kind of the downside going into it. At least I'll learn a lot about the food world. And so we started a right. business. I, I partnered with a couple of people. Uh, one was an, an operator who was going to effectively run this business and did. And it was a catering and restaurant business. So we were a restaurant for lunch and we did a ton of office catering. We started the business. I spent a bunch of time there, but I was still doing my day job. I was sort of half time there for a while, just sort of helping them out. And I reached a certain point where I just had to, I, I felt like I wasn't doing it justice. I needed to actually take the plunge. And so I quit and spend a bunch of time in, you know, more acutely in that business. And it was actually a really good experience. I felt like I had an impact on the business. We were improving things, the profitability of the part, we were actually kind of getting somewhere. Then the pandemic right. hit and right. it was just squarely like we were offices, like we were office lunches and office catering. And as soon as that happened within a week or two, just knew or we were done for. It wasn't even if people came back to work, it was still going to be really challenging for our business to be what it was. And so we started to pivot and do home delivery and these other things, but it was really challenging. And so I found myself sort of as the pandemic developed, going back into investment banking because I knew it because I had an expertise there. And amongst all of that sort of learning about myself, and the world of work and what I was looking for with a job and, and all those things. And I ended up starting a podcast in amongst all that as well, because right. I was kind of going through this. I was talking to a lot of people who were, you know, call it in their mid thirties as well. And my peers who were having the same challenges about their careers and what they wanted to do and what they were doing and where they were going with everything. And so that's what sort of led me to the podcast and ultimately led me back to the world of investment banking. So did the company end up shutting down or is it still going in some form? No, I sold parts of it and then shut down the rest of it. We kept going for a while, even after I sort of returned to investment banking, but it was just too hard. It was it was really a new yeah. business in a ever-changing climate, which just was really challenging to do. And it kept me up at night. Like it really kept me up at night. <laughs> yeah. And I just couldn't spend the time that I needed to to make it the right thing. And I'd almost felt like I had gotten all I wanted to or could at the time through. I mean, it was really stressful to kind of go through this yeah. pandemic not knowing yeah. what was going on, not knowing how much it was going to cost you and what was going to happen to your business and people were going to buy your product and all that. So for me and my almost mental health, I had to I had to ultimately just sort of leave and stop. And it again, it wasn't easy though. Once you have a business, it's not as easy as a job of just quitting <laughs> and moving to a different city or something. It's it's a lot more to it than that. And so it took a lot of steps to, to ultimately exit, but it's essentially done now. Apart from all of that, what do you feel like you got out of your entrepreneurial journey? It was my MBA. Effectively, it was a lesson in all things business. It was a bit funny, I think, in many ways as an investment banker. Really, I'm a consultant. I was a consultant. I'm a consultant. And you know, felt silly telling people what to do when you've never done it yourself. And so I at some point wanted to go do it for myself, and so which is what I did. And I think just wearing so many hats, doing so many different things, seeing that whole cycle of starting from scratch, going up into a real business, falling apart, trying to build like all that stuff, dealing with people, dealing with customers, suppliers. Like it was just this 
incredible experience of stuff that I, and it's even hard to tangibly say what I learned other than like mm-hmm. how to run a business and how to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> and like, that's really what I learned, but there's so many things within that, that I did yeah. learn. And so you kind of take those away. And I do feel like coming back to really the same world that I was in before as a different person, because I've learned so much kind of doing that. And again, it's hard to tangibly tell you what those things are, but it just feels different. It feels like I've got a different perspective, which is probably the biggest thing. You go from an environment, you've got an office, you've got an assistant, you've got all the support staff to help you. You've got analysts. And then it's like you and your co-founders, basically, especially in the beginning, I would imagine probably had to set up everything yourselves and do a lot of different things yourselves. And you become a jack of all trades very quickly. Exactly. And so there's good and bad, right? There's some benefits of that, especially when you're trying to learn, especially if you're in a certain stage of life, especially if you really want that. (laughs) And if you don't, and so I I just see it now as pros and cons. And for me, looking back, it was something I had to do. It was something that I just, I couldn't get out of my head that I would have been kicking myself if I had never done it. But at the same time, it didn't really work out for me in many ways. Maybe it did. Maybe it did work out in a different way. The business itself didn't work out. It wasn't this huge, successful thing. I don't know if that would have changed if the pandemic didn't happen. I honestly don't know, but it was, you know, a great experience to go through. And, you know, I do encourage people still, if they really, really want to, to be an entrepreneur and to think about it hard, especially if they are kind of like me. And at the same time, though, it isn't the be all end all. I think we tend to romanticize entrepreneurship in many ways, because we hear a lot about just in the business world and the newspapers and the media about all the great stories and all the right. every the accolades and all the things, good things people do. But it's a lot of work. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of failures. And that part we don't always sort of hear about. Well, there's a reason they call unicorns unicorns. Incredibly. But doesn't they don't seem that rare <laughs> when you listen to the media, right? But they are. Well, I mean, if you think about it in the context of, I don't know what the stats are in Canada and the US, there's something like 10, 12, 14 million small businesses out there in the United States. And maybe a hundred of them ultimately would grow to become sort of billion dollar plus valuation companies. And so it is pretty rare, but those are the ones you always hear about, right? The, The PayPals, the Googles, the Facebooks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you mentioned you started a podcast during the pandemic as well. Was it really just stemming from comparing notes with people of your age about sort of where they were in their careers and whether they were thinking about doing something different or was there something more to it than that? Part of the rationale at the time was in the pandemic, I hadn't been talking to people the same way. I was sort of all of a sudden doing these calls like a podcast. You're effectively just, hey, we should catch up. We haven't talked in a while. And then I realized I should record these. And the topic of conversations I was having was a lot about this, was about you know my career and what I did and then whoever I was talking to and what they were doing. And it's incredible. Like there was a friend that I have that's a, a cardiologist and I had him on the podcast and it's crazy what you have to go through to be a cardiologist out there. And there's a lot of training, validly yep. so. And I had a really good friend that I've known for 25 years, never talked to him about it though. And so just to sit there for 45 yeah. minutes or an hour and pop over questions was, was I think really helpful, not only for me, but I think for people out there trying to figure out what they want to do. And it doesn't mean you want to be a cardiologist, so you're going to listen to him. It's, it's anything, right? It's what is he trying to do and get out of his job? How was he approaching it? How are the steps in his job as he develops and thinks about his career and all that and those things? And so I've de facto, I think through doing all these interviews become a bit of a, you start to develop opinions and I don't want to call it a career expert, but something along the way where I'm headed there. Yeah. 
because you get, as you get more senior and in the world, you get asked more and more often for advice. And so I figured out let's record some of this advice and help young people and people who may be struggling at at any time, given time, you can do it when you're 40 or 50, you can be struggling with your career. I, I never claimed to have it all figured out even myself. And so you know, just having those conversations, I think, is is the idea. So yeah, it's called yeah. Lifetime at Work. And it's just an interview every time with a different guest about their job and their career journey and what they get out of the working world. I would say my starting point was very similar in that I just have always been curious about kind of how people have made the career decisions that they have and what they've learned. And I described it to people that I work with one day is we all kind of talk to people that we don't work with. I'm just doing it in a structured way and recording yeah. it and releasing it for other people to listen to. But as you say, I mean, there's a lot of people that I've had on who I've known for a really long time, some of whom I've gone a really long time without talking to. And it's fun to catch up, but you also really get a much deeper sense for kind of what their path's been like since they finished school or whatever. Yeah, it's it's what we focus on. It's what we do. That's why I call it lifetime at work. We just, it becomes our lives, right? It's so much, we have all these other things about our lives. We have family, we have personal, we have hobbies, we have all these things, but kind of our, call it our work, but our achievements, a lot of our achievements, you know, you can't dismiss them from being tied to to work. So what's your mix of guests look like? As I've evolved, I've tried to tone it in a little bit. I would say I was more scattered probably at the beginning of just talking to anyone. I had a cardiologist, I had an Olympic figure skater on, like I just did various different types of guests. And I think where I've headed to lately is a lot more into the business world. So kind of niching into, okay, having an a lawyer, a marketing person, an HR person, and trying to get really though, in a lot of ways that, you know, where I'm, I'm headed more and more so are, are towards sort of business leaders and really yeah. the moves that they've made and, and how they've gotten there. It's, it's interesting and actually really hard, I find it in some ways to break through. You can talk to break through like the what really got them there. And I find that, like you mentioned unicorns earlier, you listen to these interviews because they're everywhere of someone, of a founder of a unicorn, and they kind of, they're very nonchalant about it, right? They don't really tell you what, there were some clear things they were really, really good at or really had to do to, to get to this point of being an incredible company. And as you do have to do, if you're trying to become a CEO of a large corporation, like the breaks you have, there's kind of niches you do. But to actually get that from people is really hard. And I think some of the the secrets and the advice or whatever is sort of what I'm trying to get to. And you don't always get at them. I mean, sometimes people have their guard up and you can't penetrate and you just don't know. But ultimately, I think what I hope to try to take away from each episode is just advice from that guest about what they've done, what they suggest that, that you do if you are in that zone, if you do want to want something like what that person has or a lifestyle that that right. person has. And, and, you know, getting an insight into it is, is interesting because, I mean, there, there are just so many different types of jobs, so many different avenues out there. Exploring them, I think, is helpful because it's hard to know really what's yeah. out there for us all. Exactly. How many episodes in are you? I think I've recorded about 50. So Yeah, I'm creeping up on 100. I've got a rhythm at this point. I would never describe myself as a professional interviewer, though. <laughs> no, you, you uh, do listen to them again, I guess. Uh, after yeah, pretty it, much. It, it's yeah. helpful. It's helpful yeah. to to listen to yourself. You work on your speaking skills. You notice things. I'm probably my biggest critic, ultimately. I guess my wife as well. She, <laughs> she'll always let me know things or tips or, or whatever to getting it through to people. But it's an interesting kind of skill that I you never thought you would need or have, or you're not quite sure who makes a good interview or not. And and I think part of it, though, also comes with a guest and, and them being open and clicking and connecting with them, which isn't always easy as well. It takes work. I mean, I put typically probably an hour into just prepping questions and thinking about what I want to cover with this person and how it's going to kind of build on what I've previously covered with other people so that, you know, there is something 
different about each episode totally. or sometimes than others. So, so I know one topic that you talk about is the future of work. You were certainly affected personally by the pandemic. We're coming up on four years about since it started. And I feel like we're kind of still finding our way into this world of remote work and hybrid work and all of that. A lot of debate about whether we're going to go back to like a full in office norm or whether remote and hybrid will stay. What's your sense of things? It's hard to say. It's, it's so tied to the business and the organization, whatever. I think over time, though, what's going to happen is that for the work from home or location is that there will just be people who want to work from home and they will go down a path and think about a career where that can be true. And there will be yeah. people who hate that and who want to be a part of a company and be there in person. And maybe it's not five days a week, but it's often, and they will head down a path for them. And and even if you are, say, an accountant, there will be accounting firms that are tailored well towards people who want to work every, anywhere. And there'll be yeah. some that, that want to work in an office. And that would just be how we think. It's hard right now to think that way because we are just not sure. And companies are yeah. still trying to figure it out. My company, 50 people, and we've got a few different offices. We don't know. We're still trying to figure it out because what's happened is people within our organization have very different perspectives. Some really like and have really enjoyed the work anywhere, work from home, and others are hated. <laughs> and so yeah. you have these organizations that haven't been constructed with that in mind. We were we built the, the company mostly before that. And so now you kind of have this big change and now everyone's a little bit different and so and yeah. trying to align. And even how we work within our organization, like the office setup is changing. And so I think that will continue to evolve over time. It's kind of interesting though, I think. Like it's one of these topics that I can't get enough of because yeah. it doesn't really have an answer. It's it's going to be one that is just we're iterating, we're trying. It's going to be different depending on the company and it's kind of remnants of that the pandemic left us. Certainly there are companies out there that have really committed to being and staying remote. They're probably more the exception than the rule. I heard a Microsoft statistic probably from like a year ago that at the time, I think 13% of jobs that were posted on LinkedIn were fully remote jobs and 50% of the applications that were put in against all jobs were for those 13%. Right. So, you know, there certainly was a lot of interest in people and being in those remote places and there just, there weren't nearly as many jobs. I guess we'll see, as you say, how things play out as we all kind of continue to find our way back into it and norms around it and how you handle hybrid meetings and all of those kinds of things. So, yeah, we're still trying to figure it out. And honestly, what's the right balance? It's again, different for every organization, but that's, it's interesting because you feel like if that's the case, that's a really cool stat that more companies who had a remote poll, that could be a, an effective tactic as long as you can still operate and yeah. still kind of make money and, and have a business plan that works on that basis, then why not, right? Why not try to offer that work from home as being a, a perk to an organization and, and retain people that way? But I guess it's not always so simple. Yeah. Not always so simple. Yeah. I mean, some industries obviously just doesn't work and other industries, it just maybe the company culture just doesn't really support it. And everybody's got a different opinion on this one. So we'll, we'll see how things shake out. Yeah. It's been a lot of talk also about the idea of the balance of power between workers and companies. You've probably seen, I've certainly seen from living in London, just looking back at the US, that the sort of unionization efforts at places like Amazon and Starbucks and strikes in the automotive industry. It seems like unions are having a little bit of a rebirth. Do you feel like in your conversations with the business leaders and others that you talk to that the balance of power is tipping more in favor of workers? Maybe. And part of the, the reason I think is 
it's going actually back to some of this work from home situation where, you know, you'll have a leader who, who says, no, no, we need to get back in the office. And then the people just don't do it. Like they're perfectly happy to just wait it out (laughs) and not go into the office and see what the punishment might be, if any. And so I think just kind of does show a little bit of that shift. Now, when it push comes to shove, maybe the, the economy's just not bad enough. If you've got enough confidence that you'll just get another job, then fine, you've got power and you're not sort of worried about it. And then at a certain point where where that kind of shifts, and it can be honestly, like it can be actual, it can just be the media, it can be based on job postings, whatever it is, industry specific, all of a sudden you feel like, hey, I, I don't have much power as I once had. But for right now, it does. I, I agree with you. It kind of does feel like a lot of ways people, employees are dictating sort of more and more within an organization. And, you know, I think it is in the best interests of a the company or a company, the leadership in a company to think through, hey, how can we get these people on our side? Because they're obviously very important to the success of our organization. How can we be a team, yeah. how can we be together? Gets to the culture of the firm and and what you're trying to achieve. But again, these are said than done in many ways. I mean, there's a social contract that comes with work, but there's also a financial contract that comes with it. And probably both sides need to give in a little bit in terms of how this is all playing out post the return to office. And as you say, I mean, there's always an economic factor in it as well, right? If the economy is really good, then it's going to be easier to find a job elsewhere. And you probably won't put up with things in the way that you might if the economy is really lousy and you're just happy to have your job. But I think there is definitely something going on in terms of different expectations. And that's a generational thing that right now it's Gen Z. It was millennials before that, and then Gen X before that. And every generation kind of brings a little bit of a different social expectation and the world of work evolves with it, right? And if it doesn't, then there's a little bit of rebellion. And if it does, then everybody kind of marches on toward the next generation. But it's just not often. We had a dislocation in the global financial crisis. We've had a dislocation here with the pandemic and those things tend to create some sorts of change in the way that, that things work. For sure. Becomes very big in your life and mixes everything up and makes you try to figure out where you yeah. are. University education is probably another topic that at least I think more often about. I mean, it's really expensive to go to school. It used to be that it was sort of common wisdom that if you wanted to get ahead in the world, you really needed to go to get a university degree, that there was going to be a massive difference in terms of your sort of lifetime earning potential if you did go to school or didn't go to school. But school has gotten more and more expensive. Again, in the US, you've got kids leaving school with six-figure loans to pay back. Over here in the UK, there seems to be more of a move to create apprentice-type programs that are aimed at kids who don't want to go to college right, or to university. Mm -hmm. And they get them in and they kind of teach them the ropes while their peers are off at university. And the idea being that by the time they hit sort of three or four years, they're 21 or 22 years old, they can kind of start on an even footing. They just got their training on the job. What's your take? Again, does this come up in any of the conversations that you have in your podcast or with some of these business owners or your friends who may be having kids approaching university age? It's interesting. I would say, and one friend that I'm thinking of in my head, I went to high school with him. He went to university. He wanted to leave university and his parents wouldn't let him. They said, we're paying for it. Don't worry. Like you just, just finish what you need is a university degree. And my advice to him at the time, which I still think was good advice, was he was great with his hands. Like he loves building anything, home renovation, like just construction in any way, like just, but there was this kind of stigma of the group that he was in and or from his yeah. parents and from whatever that he shouldn't do it. And so 
I think he, so he didn't, he, he kept going with university and got, and then out of university, got a completely different job and never went back and pursued any of that. He, he does a lot of stuff around the house, <laughs> but doesn't today. And I think yeah. that, yeah, for some reason, to me, there's just been this disconnect around, we just, as parents, as people, we just sort of feel like, or as elders, maybe we just sort of feel like the job of someone who's doing something manual labor-ish, or it doesn't even, have, you could be owning the company that does this, whatever it is. There's just something wrong with yeah. that or there's something that's not, shouldn't be my offspring for whatever reason. I don't know. It's a hard thing. I think we sort of have to get over it a little bit because we do need those types of people. We do need those jobs. We do need a lot of people to build what the things are in the world. And it does feel like in a lot of ways, over time, they're kind of getting lesser and lesser. So yeah, I mean, to your point on the cost of all the cost of all these things, I think it's a pretty fascinating one that is a whole separate podcast topic yeah. in and of itself, but just on yeah. on kind of education and the cost of it. To me, a lot of education and higher university college education really seems to be the credential, the badge. And, yeah. and it's a lot of, it's so much less about what you actually learn there. And it's more like, oh, you went to that, you went to Oxford or whatever it is. Mm. And, and that has its own badge. It's kind of like working at Facebook or Google or whatever. It's like, you don't even, yeah. it doesn't really matter. You, you have this badge, someone validated you. And rather than, because it's hard to interview someone and really tell who they are, what they're about, I'm just going to rely on that, you know, that yeah. university that they worked at or that establishment. That, so we, we do it out of convenience as hiring managers as and I don't know. Yeah, you would think that, that, you know, like we were saying before, that shouldn't last or that shouldn't be ultimately in a market based world economy job market that, you know, that should be the case. But it kind of is. And it really is expensive. And I think it really is making it, I think it does make it challenging for people without, without sort of the means who don't come from a background of that to sort of compete with, with I think, the same people. So, like, I do see it as a kind of a problem and, and a little bit of us onus on us those that are in the hiring decisions to kind of yeah. be able to think through and how do you offer jobs and opportunities for everyone. I mean, we've pretty much banned putting educational requirements into a job description, you know, when you're posting something online, unless yeah. it's literally like for a new grad, because if somebody's five or se even five or seven years out of school, right? Like, does it really matter where they went to school? I mean, what really matters is how they've adapted to the work world and what they're able to achieve. Yeah. But there is back to your badge point, you know, it's like, oh, you went to XYZ school. Oh, you worked at XYZ company, whatever the case may be. And it's sort of street credibility, even, even if yeah. you know it's really a bad indicator in the scheme of things. One last future of work topic, artificial intelligence. Kind of hard to escape that one this year. Obviously, it's been out there for longer than just this year, but really with chat GPT kind of getting into the all the news, you know, right around Christmas time last year. And just it's been a huge explosion since then. What's your take? You know, I hear people talk about AI is going to take all our jobs. I hear people say it's going to revolutionize everything about the world in a positive way. Where are you on that continuum? It's hard for me to know whether I am just an optimist or whether I've actually done the, the diligence required to properly assess this. I'm not sure. I'm generally positive because I think that what we can hopefully allow AI to do, say, in an office job is to do the stuff that we don't want to do ourselves, the tedious yeah. stuff, the stuff that is just, I don't know, that we ultimately want to train AI to do instead of us. Yeah. Now there's obviously limits to that. If people are going to get replaced for sure. I think it, you know, ultimately if a yeah. computer can do something better, then there's more and more reason to do that. I think there's going to be a cost advantage, but at the same time, I think it will keep us on our toes for sure in terms of having to find sort of the next thing. But yeah, I'm generally an optimist because of that. I think that it will make us more efficient. I still think we'll need people to do a lot yeah. of these things. I think that's been proven over the years 
as technology has advanced over the last 20, 30 years, and we've, you know, it's become increasingly more and more. I mean, if I think about people would have said in my career in investment banking, where you make models in, in Excel now, but before Excel, these were done on pen and paper and, yeah. you know, little tables. And so, you know, has that made it so that there are less people writing on pens and paper? I guess so, but it's also allowed us to do so much more. And so I think because of that, I'm, I'm probably an optimist and and I sort of see yeah. it as being more of an opportunity. So people out there, the advice I'm giving them is you just start learning. Like I, I spent probably 15 minutes earlier today trying to figure out how AI or you know an AI program out there could help me with something. And it, I learned a little bit. It, we're not quite there where you can just right mm-hmm. away, just do whatever you want. And it's super easy. You do have to sort of figure out, okay, how do I use it to my advantage the best? And so that it's setting myself into a routine where it's actually helpful. But I yeah. do think we have to explore, explore and understand it. And I think do think that those people who do and understand it at least will be better ahead because they'll they'll be able to take advantage of it earlier and, and sort of recognize when it is either taking their job or helping them yeah. do their job better. I mean, look, look, we've all been benefiting from artificial intelligence in different forms for longer than a year. It's crept into a lot of different products that we use, Siri, you know, or yeah. Alexa would be like two really easy examples. But I do think it's going to be a dislocation for some people, right? I mean, the same way that manufacturing moving overseas was a dislocation in the same way that workplace automation was a dislocation. It just forces you to adapt, right? And I think we're going to have another one of those cases where people are going to adapt and some people will adapt well and some people will struggle and that's going to have social consequences that come with it and we just are going to have to work through it. But it's hard not to see the many, many benefits that it could also have just in terms of being able to make things easier, identify problems more quickly, all the things that it's already being used for. Yeah. To your point on the, the future of work, and though that was the last question, it, I think that the future of work is being that much more nimble. We've had so many different types of jobs. I think that idea that you can go to school, learn one set of skills, and then do that job for the rest of your life, I don't know if that's going to be the case anymore. And it may be that you doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go to school every 10 years to learn something brand new. It just though mean you have to pivot a little bit, that you're going to have to get into a different field. You have to learn some new skills and that that is the way that work is going to be and that you've kind of got to be on your toes and aware of it. You can't just sit there and hope that you're going to retire before you'll need to learn something new. All right. We talked a little bit about the future of work. I spent a few minutes on the today of work. I know you talk to your podcast guests about how to navigate today's workplace. What do you hear from them about the particular challenges in today's work world? Yeah, there's a stat, which I don't have it very exact, but something like 67% of people are unhappy in their job of some sort. You do these sort of surveys out there. And the reason why I do the podcast is really to try to flip that number, maybe potentially upside down and see if we can get more people sort of liking their job. Because through that experience that I mentioned to you about myself, I really did go through a bunch of Hey, I hate this. Hey, I love this. And just learning about myself and what about work was key for me, I think. And one of the big takeaways I had were was people. I had no appreciation for how much the people around me every day sort of mattered in making my day and my job and what I was doing important. And it almost to the point where like I actually think it actually is more important. Like in our heads, we sort of think about, well, I want promotions and I want more money and I want you kind of think that way, prestige, I don't know, these other things. And maybe it should actually be a lot more about like, well, I want to be around these people because they're fun and they challenge me and they're sort of those things. And I really sort of realized that. And so I think that we all are out there trying to figure out like our jobs, how to get through whatever we're doing to, I don't know, be fulfilled by by work. And so 
I think listening to people and hearing how they're doing it and their perspectives and all that are, are super important. And I do think, you know, trying different things is, is helpful as well, because with each new thing that you do with each new position, yeah. whatever it might be, you learn more about yourself, you learn more about the world of work. And so a little bit too, with the podcast as I'm interviewing people, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get that as well from them is, Hey, you know, yeah. what did you do? And why did you do it? And what did that teach you? And, and maybe that is a mistake or, or an experience I need to do and make. I mean, that statistic that you quoted, it probably is Gallup has been running sort of employee surveys for forever and ever. And the the statistic that you hear is that only 30% of people, these are Americans, are engaged at work, which is, you know, sort of the opposite way of saying what you were saying a second ago. And and what's crazy, it's been like that for decades, right? It's been roughly flat at 30% for decades. And you just think like, man, for like a generation, basically 70% of people go to work not engaged, which just feels pretty awful. And you wonder like, how do you change that dynamic? I mean, it's all the things that have happened in the work world, good and bad. It's been roughly flat at that level. And just, I can't imagine spending my whole career going to work, not being engaged and excited about what I'm doing. It would just make life really tedious. And that's part of the reason I got into doing some of this stuff as well is to try and help people kind of figure out what's going to work for them. Yeah. I talk to people all the time with my job and, and the podcast. And one of the, my pet peeves is when it's a Monday and people are really upset about it, or it's a Friday and people are really happy. And I, like, I am trying to instill upon people that you can have them all be good and you can have them, you know, yes, there are going to be days that you don't like and days that are better than others, but that it's just not a default that, Hey, <laughs> the work week is over. Cause I, I do think, and I do think there's a lot you can get out of your job. And that's sort of where the big thing that I've come away with in listening to and, and talking to and interviewing all these people through my podcast is that you can achieve a lot of these things that you want to, that you're trying to get out of life. You can learn a lot about yourself. You can achieve a lot. You can you can do all these things yeah. through your job. And that provides a ton of satisfaction, you know, as long as you align it yeah. right. And unfortunately, that maybe the unfortunate part is a lot of it is in our heads. <laughs> yeah. And that almost makes it harder. It's not so easy as just getting a new job. And this job will all of a sudden be the holy grail of whatever. Unfortunately, a lot of it is in your own head and you have to be able to like look at yourself and say, okay, well, why am I so unhappy today? Or what is wrong with this? And how do I change my frame of mind? And that's actually really hard to do. You need to really have a great awareness. You really have to know yourself. You have to talk to people yet. Like there's all these things you need to do. And even then you may still be in that situation. So it's not easy, but I do think that it's it's out there. I do think what is what we should strive for though is is really liking what we do and and just getting out of it. Again, you're not going to love every day, but to enjoy the journey, enjoy the battle, enjoy the day to day, which I think is you know important just for life. Absolutely. Where does all this leave you in terms of any final advice that you would want to give our listeners? I think that's a pretty good point to leave on is this idea of finding sort of what you like. And a piece of advice I would ask people to do is especially when you're unsure is just talk to the people that are around you that know your good friends, your neighbors, your family members, whomever it might be around you and just just have like a genuine conversation with them about your career. And I know that sounds pretty easy. Just spend like 10 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever, laying out to them, okay, here's what I want to achieve. Here's where I'm at to date. Here's what I'm thinking and whatever, you know, as honestly as you can. And it'll you'll be shocked if you do that with five people that they're all going to tell you the same thing. And it's going to be the first time you're going to say, I don't know. And then eventually you'll sort of realize that it's super obvious. And I just found that over time that people really know you and we overthink ourselves. And that if you can lay it out for others and even just saying it out loud, 
five times or whatever really will help you in understanding, hey, should I leave my job? Should I get a new one? Am I? How do I like this job better? How do I deal with this problem that I'm having? So use the people that are around you. And in some cases, it's just even the connection that you make with that person, that neighbor, that family member through having that conversation that is what you're actually looking for. Just doing that is is what we're striving for. Because again, it's kind of this learning experience for all of us. Good advice to close on. Thanks for doing this with me. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's uh, yeah, yours, your podcast seems, you know, has a lot of similarities to mine for sure. So I'm sure hopefully your guests found this helpful and thank you. I want to thank Greg for joining me today to cover his work in investment banking, his entrepreneurial journey, his career podcast, his thoughts on the future of work, and a little bit of his thoughts on navigating the current world of work. If you'd like to make the most of your career, visit pathwise.io and become a member. Basic membership is free. You can also sign up on our website for our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.